Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. It's rare to find a winner that isn't happy they won. And in one sense, the message of the gospel is that Jesus won. Therefore, you won. So celebrate. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Living Hope with this sermon entitled Salvation's Joy, which covers 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray just for our time as we open God's word together, uh, and then we'll, we'll see where he's leading us this morning. Father, would you bless the reading the teaching, the hearing, the receiving, and the application of your word. We believe with all of our hearts that you speak to us through your holy, your living, your active word. Would you press it deep into our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you cause it not to return void as you promised, but that it would shape us and mold us, convict us and encourage us, make us more like you, Jesus, that we may love you, that we may experience great joy in all that you offer us. And would you do it unto your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we, we started this uh, series last week on uh, salvation's hope. The name of the series is Living Hope, but last week's sermon was Salvation's Hope. As we consider our salvation, what it is that God has done for us, it produces within us uh, hope. And we talked last week about what biblical hope is, is that it's not fond hope. It's not a hope that calls us into wish, wishful thinking, wishful hoping, but rather it's a, it's a sure hope. It's a hope that is certain. It's a, it's a hope that is steadfast and certain in the finished work of Christ, most specifically in his resurrection. That because he has resurrected and conquered the grave, that we too Share in that same resurrection. And so our hope is sure. And with that comes joy. That's where Peter's headed this week. In this first chapter of Peter that we're walking through uh, for the rest of this month, the first thing he wants his readers and subsequently us to get is that we should be filled with hope because of our salvation. But then now, joy. And so what is joy? Well, Joy is the fruit of realized hope. Joy is the fruit of realized hope, uh, either a present hope, a realized present hope, or uh, a realized future hope, meaning that you know that it's gonna happen, it hasn't happened yet, but it is sure. And so just think about that for a moment. Think about uh, all the ways in which we experience that to be true, that if joy is the fruit of realized hope, how do we see that play out in life? Well, all the time. There's all situations where uh, when it happens, it's a hope that we've had for a long time, and when it happens, we rejoice. I hope he'll propose. When he does propose, we rejoice. I hope I'll get that job. When, when you do get that job, you rejoice. I hope I get that raise. When you do get that raise, joy. Just this past week, I know I've brought it up several weeks in a row, but hey, we're in the state of Georgia. Just this past week, I got to go with three Georgia fans, I'm a Bama fan, and sit in the Georgia section at the national championship game. I was the only Bama fan within what felt like miles. 
And I got to witness firsthand, not my joy, I didn't have joy, but their joy. When, when that player finally intercepted uh, that pass and finally brought home the championship to Georgia, I watched people all around me lose their minds with joy. Grown men crying around me. Tears of joy. I saw a post from one uh, person that said, here's my husband. He didn't cry when we got married. He didn't cry when our kids were born, but he's crying now that Georgia's won a national championship. But a joy. Why? Because something that had been hoped for for so long had happened. And so it wasn't one of these things where these fans all of a sudden were going, should I be joyous about this? Let me ponder this. Let me think about this. No, it was instinctive. It happened because the hope was realized. Same thing when we get the news that we're pregnant. For Rachel and I, we... Uh, tried to get pregnant for many years. And when that finally happened, joy, right? When, we, when God led us to our son to adopt him after such a long time of waiting to, to have a son, joy. And then when each of our da daughters were born, unhindered, instinctive joy, hope realized. But then sometimes it's a future joy. You know it, it hasn't happened yet. But you know it's going to. It's not will it happen, it will happen. So again, maybe a boss comes to you, uh, uh, your direct report, your supervisor, and says, hey, I just wanna tell you, you're going to get a raise. Now, it won't be reflected until your end of the year paycheck, but you will get a raise, or you will get a bonus. Now, there is joy in that news and in that promise. You don't have it yet, but you will. Uh, you will get a tax return. Uh, you get the letter back from the IRS that says you overpaid on taxes this year. And so here's what you're set to receive from the government. And you see the number. And it's a big number, perhaps. And you haven't gotten that check yet, but you see that it's going to come. And you experience joy. It's a hope that will happen. And so Peter's writing this letter, and he's speaking to both of those realities. He's saying, Christian, Look back and realize what God has done for you in the hope that you have now presently. Here is what he has done. He has chosen you before the creation of the earth. You are elect exiles. You are his. You are scattered throughout the earth, but you are secure. You are secure in the finished work, the good finished work of the Godhead. The father who foreknew you before the creation of the earth, before the foundations of the earth, uh, the son who has secured your salvation through the sprinkling of his blood and through his obedience on your behalf and the spirit who uh, assures your sanctification, who cleanses you, who does the work to make us more and more like Jesus. It is sure. And that hope that is so sure causes us to rejoice now. But then he also in this first chapter begins to point, and you'll see it today, to what's to come. He says, look back at the hope received, the present hope, and rejoice, but look forward because there's more to be revealed. Christ will come again, and when he comes again, the fullness of who we are in Jesus and the fullness of the, of the revelation of the redemption of Christ will be seen, will be experienced. All things will be made new. And so we hope, and in that 
realized hope, we rejoice. Joy flows out of that. So when you think about salvation, even that first part, that present joy over what God has done, even that is something that, as we talked about last week, we can't take any credit for. Why? Because God is the one who does the saving. God is the one who is merciful and gracious and awakens dead sinners. I love in his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second for my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not see, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compel and entrari, compel them to come in is what that means in, in the Latin have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Surprised by joy. C.S. Lewis wasn't even looking to be joyous in Christ. But Christ in his great mercy pursued him relentlessly. And even as a reluctant convert, melted the heart, the hard heart of an atheist student. You know, that Latin phrase that he used there may not be familiar to you. It's taken from uh, Luke chapter um, 14, verse 23, where it says, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my, that my house may be filled. What he's referring to, he says, that's been abused by wicked men over the centuries. He's talking about the church. That for a long time, for many centuries, the church, uh, leading up from towards the end of the first millennium of the church into the Middle Ages and up to the Reformation was using that in a very twisted way because they had joined with the government. The church and state was completely married. They were using it to, uh, not in a winsome way to bring people to Christ, but in a, a wicked way to make people come and be a part of the church against their will. And so he's saying, in a way that the church has misused that throughout the centuries, I began for the very first time to hear, come, compel them to come in and come to the one who is rest, and his name is Jesus. And when that happened for C.S. Lewis, and even now as I read that from him, uh, if you're a Christian, I hope you're recalling your, your salvation story, your salvation joy, you're remembering the ways in which you came to the Lord, kicking and screaming, a reluctant convert perhaps, yet the mercy of God won you over. The relentless pursuit of his 
grace and his love for you uh, melted that hard heart and brought you into a relationship with him and you experienced a joy that you weren't even searching for. You didn't even know it existed. And so here's this God who has given us one of the greatest gifts that humans could ever receive and that's the gift of joy. But don't miss this. The circumstances of our life, the difficulties of our life, the persecutions perhaps of the Christian life can make joy feel like one of the most elusive realities of this life. We lose it. We lose the joy of our salvation. Last week we talked about the hope of salvation, but this week the joy You think about it, the pangs of life, the dread of death, all the uncertainties and doubt, all the fears, all the disappointments, all the sickness, all the pain, the ways in which our hearts can be broken over and over and over again can cause us to lose joy. And so Peter writes a letter to a people that he is perceiving, they're tempted. They are either on the brink or have already fallen off the cliff into joylessness. Because as we talked about last week, they are being persecuted. Either the threat of persecution is at their door or they are already experiencing it under the reign of Nero. And because of that, Peter knows joy may not be what they're experiencing. And so I wanna write to them to remind them that our joy is ultimately not found in our circumstances, but it is found in our Savior. Peter's writing a letter to, to essentially say this, to say, certainly your circumstances affect you. You wouldn't be human if they didn't. But they don't define you. He defines you. They don't determine your joy, he does. And so he begins to press in, pressing in on this reality of a living hope in Jesus that produces an inexpressible joy. So let me recap for you real quick again, the three main things that we hit last week. Now, depending on which service you were in, uh, I got a little further than I did in other services. So some of this will be review for, uh, for some of you and others not, but asking three questions in these first 12 verses of 1 Peter. The first one is this. According to Peter, who are God's people? And we answered that question last week to simply say that uh, we are exiles or we can also use the word strangers in the world. Also in verse one, we saw that we're dispersed or scattered throughout the world. But as I mentioned a moment ago, despite those two realities, being strangers and scattered, exiles and dispersed, we are secure. more more secure than we probably ever could imagine, held firmly in the grip of God most high, existing in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and his finished work, his good work. We are secure in the salvation work of the Godhead. And we see that in the first two verses. But as we get into verse three, we see some new truths. And we're asking the question in verse three is, what is true of God and our salvation. So what's true of his people, but now what's true of God 
and what's true of our salvation because of who God is. So let's read verses three through 12 again and then make some observations. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him uh, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. I'm gonna walk through just what we just read and just make some quick observations and, and applications as it pertains to the realities of who God is and what's true of our salvation. What can we bank on? What is it that helps us see that we have this realized hope in the finished work of Jesus, and it instinctively causes us to be a people who rejoice full of joy because of it, regardless of circumstances. So first and foremost, I mentioned this in one of the services last week. The first thing we notice right there in verse three is that God is merciful and worthy of all our praise. I, what I mentioned in the last service is that I love that Peter can't even begin to talk about the living hope that we have in Jesus without first uh, just instinctively yet again praising God as he considers the salvation of our souls, as he considers what we have in Christ. And he just starts with praise. Blessed be the, Lord, blessed be the God of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He, he starts with praise because of the mercy of God. Why? Well, because secondly, we see in verse three, because he's given us a new birth. Blessed be the, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy, again, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he has done completely for us. He has caused us to be born again. Born again, he's given us a new birth. This is language that we see also in John chapter three where Jesus is engaging with the Pharisee, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus' heart is not like many and most of the other Pharisees. It's softened towards Jesus. He's curious. He's meeting Jesus in the shadows of the night because he doesn't want to be seen by his, um, by his friends, his, his Pharisee colleagues, 
that he's talking to Jesus. And even more than that, not that he's talking to Jesus, but that he's inquiring about Jesus' teachings. And he comes to Jesus in the night and he says, Rabbi, teacher, tell me, what is it? How, how, how must I be saved? And Jesus says to him, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is confused. He's thinking literally, he's thinking physically, he's saying, how can I uh, enter again into my mother's womb? And Jesus begins to explain, we're not talking about a physical rebirth here, we're talking about a spiritual rebirth. What he's saying is this, is that as men and women were born once into the world and physically and in that birth, and, and, the, and David in the Psalms even helps us understand that, it, that even in our conception, that we are conceived into sin, meaning that a part of our nature from the very moment that we begin in this life, we're, we're in sin. We're born into sin. It's not what we have done to be sinful. We are sinful because it's who we are. We're born with that nature to be in opposition to God, to fight against him, even as C.S. Lewis says, to, uh, to kick and scream and push against the things of God because we've inherited the very nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's our nature, it's who we are. And so what Jesus is saying is this, just as you were born into sin, now you have to be reborn into righteousness, but you can't produce righteous, righteousness. You and I can't do that because of our sin. We can never be right enough, if you will, for God. We can never be good enough. Any the, even the, the smallest hint of one sin wrecks righteousness. And so what Jesus is ultimately saying is he speaks to Nicodemus and what Peter is saying here in the first chapter is he's saying there's a new birth available to you and it's a spiritual rebirth and it can only happen through the through the one, the only one who is righteous, and that's Jesus. So Christ came, and because he, yes, was born of woman, but also born, or not born, but from God, that he is God, that he condescended in the flesh, is what we talked about back at Christmas time, the incarnation, fully divine, fully man. And because he is the God-man, he takes on sin, but never becomes sinful. He's the only one who is righteously pure. He's obedient on our behalf. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying in the mercy of God, he's caused us to be born again. To Nicodemus, he's saying you must be born again. So to you watching right now, there's a, there's a second birth and it's a birth by faith in Jesus. To where when we believe upon Jesus as the only righteous one who then attributes his righteousness to us as if it were ours through faith in him, then we therefore are born again, meaning our, our hearts are resurrected into new life. We are now passing from death to life. We're given new hearts, not hearts of stone like we we're born with, but now hearts of flesh. Soft hearts towards God, hearts that actually long to do uh, and be what God longs for us to do and be, to obey him, to, to walk with him, to no longer push against him, but to move towards him as he moves towards us. There's a rebirth, a new birth, where Jesus is redeeming and renewing in us what sin killed in us. And we are step by step bit by bit in this life, becoming more like 
him. It's a second birth. And Peter's rejoicing in it. He's saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his mercy has caused us to be born again. Into what? This is the focus of last week. Into a living hope. Because Jesus lives, because Jesus conquered the grave, because the resurrection is, is his, now that we're united to him by faith, and we've received his righteousness in his heart, and we're united to him in his death and in his resurrection, then we too now are alive eternally. There's no fear of death. There's hope. And it's a living hope. And it's a sure hope. And where is it? Look at what he says. He says, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as I just explained. But watch this. Into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's the third thing I want you to see is that our new birth, or the, well, I've already skipped past that. Here's, if you like to fill in blanks, here was the third point. Our new birth has a present reality and it's a living hope. But our new birth also has a future reality and it's an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you. It's as if Peter is just trying to think of words that would help us have rest and security in the certainty of our inheritance. It's imperishable, it's unfading. It's undefiled. There is nothing that we can do to mess up our inheritance as redeemed, born-again believers in Jesus. And not only that, but he's holding it. He's keeping it. He's preserving it in heaven, saying, it's yours. Way more than the excitement and joy that we get when that boss or manager or supervisor comes to us and says, you will be getting a raise at the end of the year. This is the God of the universe coming to us and saying, you will be receiving the inheritance that is Jesus's and it will be yours. He's your older brother. He's your inheritance. Everything that's his will be yours. And as much joy as a raise uh, gets us, how much more joy? does the one who raised from the dead bring us? That he is ours and everything that's his will be ours on that day. Peter's given us words here to give us affirmation to say, I know you're getting persecuted Christians in, in Bithynia and throughout Asia Minor in Galatia. I know you're getting persecuted, but your hope and your joy is not in those things. They affect you. They don't define you. Watch what he says next. He says, as the verse continues, he says, it's kept in heaven for you. Look at verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, the, the almighty God of the universe is protecting this inheritance for you. You're being guarded for you and me and for the church. And then he makes another promise. When will we know this? When will this joy be fully realized? When Jesus Christ is revealed. Here's the next thing I want you to see is that our salvation in all of its fullness, it will be revealed. God is not speaking through Peter here in, in any doubtful or questionable tone. 
He's speaking in matter of fact, certain promises. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It's protected and guarded by the God of the universe and all of his might and power. And it will be revealed to you, those who are in Christ. When you die, you'll get it. When he comes again, we will get it in full. What we taste in part now of the goodness and the salvation of our God, we will experience in all of its fullness when he returns. We've talked about this a lot over the past year. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you die now before Christ returns, then you're immediately with the Lord. You're immediately in his presence, but beholding his glory, rejoicing in ways that you never thought possible. But even in heaven as it exists now, before the second coming of Christ, there's a longing. There's a longing. There's an anticipation. And that longing and anticipation is, when, is for when Jesus will come and he'll bring his kingdom to bear in the new heavens and new earth, meaning he'll come and physically be reigning on this earth and he'll purify all wickedness from it. And those who have believed upon him, we will be glorified among his, uh, uh, with him among his people. And as real and as physical as I am sitting in this chair right now, and as you are sitting where you're sitting right now, that reality will be a physical, real new heavens and new earth where all things have been made new and all things are perfect and all things exist for the glory of Jesus. And we will be glorified with him and we will reign with him. And so what we taste only in small little droplets now, we will drink deeply of then to the glory of Jesus. And Peter's saying, that's yours because of the salvation that can only be through the mercy of God. But watch what else he continues to say. He says, in light of all that, look at verse six. In this you rejoice. In what? In your salvation. In everything we just talked about. Rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Look, because here's the reality. Watch what he says. Though, though now for a little while, what does he mean little while? He means perhaps your whole lifetime. Your whole life, that's a little while in, in comparison to eternity. We like to take that verse and say, okay, for a little while, meaning, okay, I'd like for that to be just a few months, God. And maybe God would answer that request. But what Peter's context is, this life. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But even that is purposed by God. Why? Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire. That your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when he does return, those who are his, those who have believed upon him, they will walk through hard things, and that's part of testing our faith. Just like gold is refined by fire, our faith is refined by trials. God promises that. That's, that's part of the Christian experience, to test us, to see if our faith is genuine. Many of us know, all of us probably know, people who have proclaimed faith, and when test and trial comes, they no longer proclaim faith. That would be God's way of saying they never had faith. And when trials came, when the fire came, there was not refinement, it was running away from God. She says, but look, 
Trust me in that. Trust me that I'm purposing those things because all of it, even for a little while, all of it is moving us towards glory. The glory of God and our glory in his presence. So that you, we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when he comes. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, as we continue making our observations, it says, our, our salvation makes us rejoice. Our God-ordained trials test our faith and result in praise. But then the last point I want you to see in this text is this, as we get to verse, verses eight and nine. He says, Peter in some ways is saying, look, I get it, you can't see God. It's hard to rejoice in something or someone you can't see. I, I understand that. And so he says, though, you have not seen him, you love him because of what he's done in us. Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him. And so as a result, you rejoice. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. Inexpressible. And filled with glory because you're obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter then goes off into a little bit of a time here where he says, look, verses 10 through 12, let me, let me summarize those for you very briefly here. He says, the prophets of old and the angels, they even longed to look into what I just explained to you. That's what Peter is saying to these recipients. They prophesied through the spirit of Christ in them, but they didn't, they looked through glass dimly lit, through clouded glass, through foggy glass. But now that we've seen it unfold, we now look through clear glass and we know his name is Jesus and we know what he has accomplished and we know what will be true when he returns. And he says, even the angels long to look into this. And so let me close with this. What would the angels say? What would the prophets say to us? If they were to sit right here with us right now, what would they say to us about this salvation, about salvation's hope and about salvation's joy? I think they would say this. I think they'd say three words. I think they say, look on in awe, wonder, Awe, whatever you want to call it. Which awe and wonder is this. Let me just give you a little phrase over here for awe and wonder. To look on in awe would be to say, I can't believe what I'm looking at. I can't comprehend what I'm trying to wrap my mind around. The mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God. I just can't fathom it. It's so good. That's all in wonder. Secondly, I think they'd say marvel at it. Now, how is that different than all in wonder? Marvel is this. Marvel isn't necessarily in that category of I can't believe it. Marvel is I can't stop staring at it. I can't stop considering it. So they'd say stand in awe, marvel, and then lastly, they'd say rejoice. What is rejoicing? What is joy? Joy is saying, I have, I have to express 
what I'm marveling at. I have to talk about it. My joy is instinctive because of what I am in awe of and what I am marveling at. I can't believe it. I can't comprehend it. It's so good. I can't stop staring at it, and I have to express it. Salvation's hope and salvation's joy. Would you do that with me? Would we be in awe of it? Would we marvel at the goodness of God in Jesus? And would we express with inexpressible joy? I know that's a, that's a contradiction of even words right there. But that we would express, even in the little bits that we can fathom, the magnitude of the wonder and the majesty of the grace and the glory of God in our salvation. King David In Psalm 51, after he had sinned greatly, towards the end of that psalm, he says this right here. He says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Interesting that he doesn't say my salvation. He knows it's only from the Lord. He knows that it's God who saves. He says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew a right heart, renew a right spirit in me. There are many of us right here this morning who that needs to be our prayer. We've lost the joy of our salvation. We haven't stood in awe. We haven't stared and marveling, and we haven't rejoiced in Jesus in far too long. So may this be the moment. May this be the moment that we stare again, that we marvel, and that we rejoice. Restore unto us, O God, the joy of our salvation. O God, our Father, would you do that? Would you give us joy inexpressible because of the hope that we now have realized in Jesus, everything that we've longed for, everything that we've hoped for, all the ways in which we've looked into lots of different places and lots of different things and pursued lots of different people to give us what only you can, hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping, and now our hope is found in you and out of it comes great joy. Would you make us joyous? Some for the very first time, others for the first time in a long time. That we may be a people who are affected by hard circumstances, but we are not defined by them. We are defined by Jesus. And may you, oh Jesus, produce joy in us because of that. We thank you. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.